O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill all the world with heaven's peace. Let's pray. Father, um, my prayer for us today is that as we look at a song of worship, a song from the ages, that, that worship would occur as we see the song, see the scriptures, our hearts will be lifted up in thanksgiving and prayer to you. I pray our desires and longings, the desires and longings of us Holy Spirit-filled people will be made manifest. I, I pray that you'll make relevant this song for today, for this day, for this people, for this song, that our hope and our longing will be amplified because of your word as it pertains to the song. I ask this in, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, this song is believed to have its origin in the 8th or 9th century. Uh, when I began uh, my research, as Jesse said last week, which is Googling, known as Googling, um, I was amazed to think that God has preserved the words to this song for us today, for a people to still sing. Um, the song is commonly known by scholars as an antiphon. Uh, an antiphon is a, a short phrase or a verse chanted during a worship service. In particular, this song was intended in its origin to be sung during the Christmas holiday, leading up to Christmas Day. So typically, they took a verse and they sang that song so many days out from Christmas, and then they took another verse and sang that one so many days, and on and on up until Christmas Day. Um, British hymnologist J.R. Watson had this to say about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The O antiphons, or the great O's, were designated to concentrate the mind on the coming Christmas, enriching the meaning of the incarnation with a complex series of references from the Old and the New Testament. Amen. Herein lies the purpose of the song. It's to draw you and I, as we sing, into God's Word to see the incarnation and to lead you and I to long for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the song took on changes throughout the centuries. Uh, a 12th century version of the song uh, with the refrain, that is the Rejoice, Rejoice Emmanuel part, uh, was found by a man named John Mason Neal in the 1800s. Neal was a minister in the Anglican Church, um, and he spotted the song in a Latin Catholic songbook. Uh, Neal translated it from Latin to English and included it in his own uh, hymnal in 1851. Several years later, another man named Thomas Helmore um, uh, supplied a tune to the song, the tune commonly known today that we sing as we sing the song, uh, and included the song in his own hymnal at that point. Uh, and lastly, the tune given by Helmore is to believe to be from 
the 15th century. So we end up with a song influenced literally from the ages. Um, If you pull out different hymnals, you look the song up on YouTube, you'll find a few variations. There's some variations in the way that the Latin was translated into English. But in general, the words, the melody will be uh, the same or similar. Today, I've chosen three of the original seven verses uh, to expound on. But before we get to the actual verses, let's talk about the mood of the song. I think, I think we can agree uh, that songs or music has feeling, or some would even say emotion. Uh, we can sense the mood or the feeling of a song when we combine its, its lyric, its melody, the accompanying chord progression, the tempo of the song, how fast or slow it is, all these things combined help us to understand the feeling of the song. Even we can sense feeling in someone's voice as they sing. They have such soul in their voice or feeling or emotion in their voice. We can sense that. We all know what I say, what I mean when I say the song, I'm walking on sunshine. It's a happy sounding song, right? I mean, everybody's smiling right now. Um, or we know what I mean about mood uh, when I mention the sad-sounding song, Tears in Heaven. How many of you know the song, Tears in Heaven? Anybody heard that one? One, two. Okay, just a few people. It was written by uh, a famous guitar player, Eric Clapton. Uh, that name might sound more familiar. Um, so Eric Clapton writes this song after his son, his four-year-old son, falls from a multi-story apartment building and dies. And when you hear the lyric and you hear the way the song translates and you hear the tempo and you hear Eric Clapton's voice, he experienced it. You feel it. I mean, you know it. It is a sad-sounding song. This song today of Come, O Come, Emmanuel elicits feeling as well. Um, John Piper describes the, the feeling of this song as the plaintive mood of longing. The plaintive mood of longing. That is, when you, this is what I think he means, when you link the, the minor chords of the song, that kind of dark sound of the chords, when you link that with the desirous, O oh, come, O oh, come lyric of the song, you, you sense the sadness, you feel the yearning, you know the longing of the verses. And then the explosion of the lyric and the refrain, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. And the accompanying major chords, that is, the chords that are being played, they sound, they don't sound sad or they don't sound dark, they sound more happy, they sound more neutral. When you hear that, it directs us to joy and soon fulfillment of a returning Savior. So let's start with verse 1. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. The essence of the song is hope in a coming Savior, a desire and longing. This is shown in the first words of the song, O come, and the effect is compounded by another, O come, O come. Note that each of the seven original verses begin with the word, O come. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O wisdom. O come, great Lord of might. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem. O come, O key of David. O come, thou dayspring. O come, desire of nations. All these have meanings. 
O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a reference to Jesus found in both the Old and the New Testament. You may notice the spelling has been with an E, Emmanuel starting with an E. It actually begins with an E or an I, uh, and um, both are correct. Uh, one is a transliteration from the Greek language and others from a transliteration from the Hebrew language, and both mean the same thing. And we'll find out in just a moment. Let's begin uh, with what Isaiah 7.14 has to say. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this verse is also quoted, not just in Isaiah, but it's also in Matthew. We've seen it before. It's in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 23. But let's back up into Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I'll start there, and we'll read through and see what is the fulfillment of this prophecy look like. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here's Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, Sometimes when we read the New Testament... The writer of the book or the letter quotes a scripture from the Old Testament. I mean, some letters are just filled and packed with tons of references to the Old Testament. And sometimes we wonder how in the world that relates to anything. Or we wonder, what does it even mean? I mean, there's some complex things that are written in the Old, in the Old Testament that the writers of the New Testament bring in to um, validate their point or make their point. Well... There are uh, no worries here. Um, Matthew makes it easy for his readers to understand what the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is. Emmanuel means, he tells us, God with us. Matthew tells us who the virgin is. It's Mary. The virgin's conception of a child is how? The Holy Spirit. Uh, And that the son the virgin would bear is Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, incarnate deity, God come in the flesh, God present with us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. This is a major theme, the ransoming of captive Israel of the Old Testament. Both Israel being captive and slaves and then being ransomed, redeemed, or delivered from captivity. Uh, Israel became slaves in Egypt. We know that story for hundreds of years. And God miraculously delivers them from their bondage and takes them to the promised land of Canaan. Uh, Time passes, Israel's sins increase, and God allows the Assyrians to capture what is known as the northern kingdom of Israel. The captives are then deported back to Assyria. Uh, Years later, many years later, the southern kingdom, known as the kingdom of Judah, is invaded by the Babylonian Empire. 
Uh, many were exiled to Babylon at that time. So this song is probably speaking of Israel's experience of physical captivity and ransom. But additionally, I think we can see an aspect or an element of spiritual captivity as well for Israel. Let's look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, I'll set it up and then we'll read the scripture. Here Paul is uh, comparing the ministry of Moses to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He explains how in Exodus, when Moses came down the mountain, the second time he came down the mountain, that his face shone so brightly with the glory of God, so brightly that he had to wear a veil over his face. And so the people were frightened, they were afraid, they put a veil over your face, I don't want to see it. So Paul then says the ministry of the Holy Spirit is much more glorious, much more radiant, much more lasting than that of the radiance that was on Moses' face. And then Paul says this about Israel or the Jews in verse 14. But their minds were hardened. That is, Jewish minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Here, you can clearly see spiritual captivity and the hardness of the mind in verse 14. You can see it in the unlifted veil that lies over the heart in verse 15. Whenever Moses read, veil lies over the heart. Um, And you can clearly see spiritual ransom. When one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. That's when it's it's removed. And through Jesus Christ, who is the Spirit, there is the liberator, or the freer, the redeemer. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Now, this brings us to the need to talk about timeline in the song, I think. The first verse looks like a prayer for Emmanuel to come the first time, doesn't it? O come, O come, Emmanuel. Sounds like he hasn't come yet. And ransom a captive group of people, the nation of Israel, that mourns in this lonely, humble exile somewhere where they don't want to be until someone, the Son of God, appears and brings them back or redeems them. Well, John Piper seems to think this could be the case in part. He mentions this song doubles as a prayer for the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first and the second. And so we can imagine in our minds as we sing um, that the Jews are crying out for Emmanuel to come. They're in their captivity. They're in Assyria. They're in Babylon. They're being oppressed by other nations. And we can also hear a need for spiritual deliverance, as I read in 2 Corinthians, um, of the hardness of their minds. But I think we can also see this verse double as a prayer for the church of Jesus Christ and for his second coming as well. We can see Christ's church crying out in hope and in longing, Come, oh come, Lord Jesus. And deliver us from the the final bondage to death. 
deliver us from the last remnant of sin that remains. When I read this section of the song, the, That Morning Lonely Exile Here Until the Son of God Appear, when I read that section, I was reminded, the first thing that popped in my mind was the Beatitudes in Matthew. Jesus sitting on the mountain and teaching the people. He says, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And our ultimate comfort will be in his appearing the second time. It will be complete. <clears throat> this song's verse is about people crying for a deliverer, longing for his coming. And I think Hebrews 9.28 is a great coupling to tie this song to his second coming and how it relates to us in our hearts. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, that is, not to be sacrificed again. He's already come once. He died. He'll appear again. But when he appears again, he's not going to sacrifice himself again. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly, eagerly are waiting for him. Where are you in this? Where's your heart in this verse? Where does your hope lie? I think the best question I could ask is, is there hope in your morning? Is there hope in that? Let's move on to the refrain. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. There is great evidence in the scripture uh, for Israel looking forward to a coming redeemer. Starting in Genesis, through the prophets, multiple times, again and again, God makes promises to Israel of a redeemer. Let's listen to Luke 2 to hear some evidence of this stirring hope. Uh, for deliverance during the time Jesus was born. Here, Joseph and Mary are taking Jesus to the temple for purification and to offer sacrifices according to the law. Luke 2, 25. We read this last week. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Simeon took Jesus and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I can die now, he says. I've seen him. This is him. This is the child. For my eyes have seen your salvation, verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Skipping down to verse 36, and there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then, as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. 
And coming up at that very hour when Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Simeon and others were surrounded there, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is clear evidence of some in Israel who were longing and waiting and thanking and rejoicing and hoping in the comforter, the consoler of Israel, to come and deliver Israel. The church of Jesus Christ waits in hope, rejoicing as well. Romans 5 is our guide. It guides us by saying that through Jesus Christ, we have been made righteous. That through Jesus Christ... We have peace with God. And then it says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, our Emmanuel. We rejoice in His revealing of His glory. And in the waiting, the waiting of the shall come to thee of the verse. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. In the waiting of that, Of the refrain, we can rejoice, as it says in Romans 5, in our suffering and in our pain and in our longing. Why? Because suffering and pain produce something in the Christian life. It's supposed to make something in us. It's supposed to produce hope and real yearning and real longing. And when it does, it is supernatural every time. Because in Romans 5, it says, God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural every time that hope rises in us as we face suffering and pain and trials. Verse 2 that we will sing today goes like this. O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Dayspring is a reference uh, to the dawn of the sunrise. So seeing Jesus as the dawn, the sunrise, even as light coming out into the darkness is really no stretch for us. Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. There are numerous scriptures concerning dawning and light as it pertains to Jesus. Uh, We will start in Matthew 4, uh, because this gospel loosely quotes a portion of Isaiah 9. And in a moment, we'll go then to Isaiah 9. But here in Matthew 4, Jesus has just come out of the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Um, He hears about John the Baptist's imprisonment, and he travels somewhere. He goes to Capernaum in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then Matthew says, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that is in Isaiah 9, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned or the day spring has shone. And so Jesus is the great light and has shown his great light to the people dwelling in darkness. That is, in the darkness of ignorance, in the darkness of this world. 
and his light has dawned on those dwelling in the shadow of death. O come thou, day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. So the arrival of the day spring is linked with joy. Come and cheer our spirits. And we'll see this as we go from Matthew into Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 2. This is what Matthew loosely quoted. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In other words, the day spring Jesus shows up where there's darkness and people hear his gospel and they see his glory. That is the effect of the day spring. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. Now, here at this point of the verse, in this context, Isaiah has seen the destruction of the land uh, by the Assyrian invasion and he's seen a reduction in the population of the nation of Israel Uh, due to the invasion and deportation of the people. He then prophesies that he sees the nation's population increase, and with it you get a sense of prosperity. This increase is a prominent feature of messianic predictions, uh, as one commentator noted. And it may refer to a great increase in the Messiah's kingdom. Okay, so you can see you have multiplied the nation. What nation? Well, he's prophesying possibly of the Messiah's kingdom, a multiplication of those who believe in his kingdom. You multiply the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. So we see joy coming. What is that joy like? Is it like joy at the harvest? So this is what I think it means. Joy at the harvest, and some of you have experienced harvests in your life. Um, joy at the harvest is when you complete your hard labors. You have labor after labor, sweat and toil. You complete those hard labors of sowing seeds or tending to flocks or tending to plants or crops by joyfully reaping the bountiful fruit from the plant or the tree or the animal that God has given. And your toils are over. There's joy. There's real joy there. I've personally experienced that. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Gladness when they divide the spoil. What is that? Well, if you're dividing the spoil, that means victory in the battle, and that means the winners take the spoil. So if you're taking the spoils, you are the winner. And there's joy there because the battle is over. So they rejoice before you, joy in the harvest, gladness when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, the yoke of his burden, that is a yoke around the neck, and the staff for his shoulder. That means the staff used to beat the shoulder of the oppressed. Follow this. The staff of the shoulder used to beat the shoulder of the oppressed. The rod of his oppressor, that is the rod used to beat the back of the oppressed. The oppressor holding the rod, beating us into submission. You, God, have broken. How has it been broken? Or in what way is it broken? As on the day of Midian. What does that mean? (laughs) 
The day of Midian is probably, and I think you'll follow me with me here, probably the day of battle when God delivers Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. He miraculously delivers them from that oppression of the Midianites with Gideon as their leader. Sound familiar now? So if not, here are the stats of that battle. The Midianite army is an estimate of 135,000 soldiers. And Gideon's army is at 32,000 soldiers. And God says to Gideon, you have too many men in your army to fight this battle. Okay? And so Gideon reduced his army from 32,000 men down to 300 men. Okay? So track with me. Maybe it's possible, just maybe it's possible for 32,000 soldiers to beat 135,000 other soldiers. Can you imagine that? I mean, I could imagine that. Maybe, possibly, they went around them like this and came around there and attacked them all, whatever. Well, well, maybe it's possible, but it is impossible for 300 men to defeat 135,000 men. Impossible unless God is at work to win the battle. Unless God is at work to defeat the enemy. And that is how this ties in right here. It's how God is at work in his people today. The light has come The light has dawned on us. Verse 2 of Isaiah 9. The people walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has day sprung, or day spring. The day spring has broken through our darkness and our shame and has shown His bright light and has removed the yoke of slavery to Satan and to sin from our necks. He has broken the rod used to beat us into submission. He has done this not on account of our striving or our strength or our parents or our goodness or our knowledge or anything in us. But he's done it as on the day of Midian. That is, God alone is at work because of his grace. In us. And joy, the cheer of this song, joy has come. And we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And his face is beautiful. And his word is inviting and not belittling. We hear him speak and it's not belittling to us. We come to his word and his spirit is working in us and through us for his glory. Amen. O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. I think the promise of Revelation 21.4 is fitting here. I think we've read it the last few weeks. And then we'll read it again later in the sermon. Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you hear the disperse, the gloomy clouds of night? He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Death's dark shadows put to flight. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Each and every one of these things on the list will touch each and every one of our lives for the rest of our lives. Death will touch us once, twice for those who don't put their faith in Jesus. But all the others listed will touch us throughout our entire lives. And God promises in that day when the day spring arrives and he puts all his enemies under his feet, no more. No more tears. No more reason for tears. No more sadness. No more reason for sadness. No more grieving, no more sorrows, no more pain, physical in our bodies, emotional, no more. The end. Joy and gladness and love perfect forever and ever for those who hope in Him. Our last verse is, O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill all the world with heaven's peace. O come, desired nations. The the texts in the scriptures is most often quoted with the phrase desire of nations is found in Haggai 2.7. And specifically, it's in the King James Version. It may be in just a few other versions, but mainly the King James Haggai 2.7 says, And I will shake the nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. There is a slight problem here, though. Um, I think some commentators disagree, some strongly disagree, that this could mean a person due to grammatical challenges in the Hebrew language and the translation of it. In fact, I think the ESV says, I will shake the nations and the treasures of all nations will come. And so, I think, one, we are left with a question, is Jesus really the desire of nations? If we're going to the scripture to try to validate this, is he really the desire of nations? In one sense, we can say that not everyone in every nation desires our Savior, Jesus, right? We could agree on that. Okay, certainly not all will be saved from the wrath of God. Otherwise, why is there wrath of God? We can even quote Isaiah 53. This will sound familiar. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So there's nothing physically about Jesus' appearance that we looked at him and said, Oh, he looks great. He looks like the Messiah. There's nothing about that that we were drawn to him in his appearance. But what can we say about Jesus and the desire of nations? Well, the Great Commission is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Surely those in all nations who believe in Jesus hail Him as their desire. The promise of God to Abraham is that in you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. That means that those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah, in any and every nation will be blessed in the way of being counted as righteous or just. Okay? Surely, 
those people in those nations, which is us in this room too, make Jesus the desire of nations. One last thing. What about Revelation 7, uh, where there's a number of people so great you can't count them? You would try and it would be impossible. There's a number so great that you can't count them from every tribe and every nation, every people and every language. They're dressed in white robes, signifying their purity, your holiness, standing before the throne of God in Revelation 7 and the Lamb of God, Jesus. Is Jesus the desire of nations to them? Yep, he is. Rather than arguing with scholars on the point of Haggai 2 and the translation of the word, we can see from Scripture, Jesus is the desire of nations, in part due to the fact that he's calling people from every nation People are hearing his gospel in every nation of the earth. Not just this group or this nation or just Israel, but every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And that he has chosen people and will gather those chosen elect from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens, as it says in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is truly the desire of nations. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill all the world with heaven's peace. Um, This line of the song, I think, is the, the sigh of everyone. I wish it were true now. Bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Let there be heaven's peace. I've been around long enough to see disunity in families and in marriages, brothers and sisters who haven't spoken or seen each other in years because of a fallout. Husbands and wives who are estranged from one another. You and I have seen racial divides. We've seen political divides. We see theological divides, gender divides. There are divides everywhere we look. I see personally on a fairly regular basis the strife of people that come into my business. They come through the doors and sometimes they take their anger out on me or on one of my employees. I think we regularly see road rage and its participants screaming at one another and honking. There's strife right there. We watch the news. We're kind of up to speed on what's going on in the world. Nations in conflict with one another, and the threat of war are threats between one another. This verse, O come desire of nations, is a cry for the desire of nations to finally and completely bring his unity and peace. There's coming a time when he arrives that all his people will be in one heart and one mind. And his people will not be envious and argumentative and bickering anymore. And truly, the world at that time will be filled with the peace of heaven. It looks something like this in Revelation 21. 
I'll read a portion of the chapter and we'll close in prayer. <clears throat> Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Sounds like our Emmanuel a little bit, doesn't it? Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There shall, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Skipping down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Sounds like our day spring a little bit. By its light will the nations walk, verse 24, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's only at this time will the desire of nations make everything right, completely and fully to its fruition, and pure and perfect. He is the desire of nations because he is called. He's calling people, come, and chosen people from every people group on the planet, to be part of his kingdom. He is the day spring shining his light in the darkness, proclaiming his good news, destroying the yoke of Satan and sin and death. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Are you calling him to come? Is there a longing, oh, come, in your circumstances, in the hard things in your life, in the ease of this life? Is there still a longing, oh, in your ease? Is there a desire for sin to be finally and completely done away with? Can we see 
how he has broken the rod used to beat us into submission. Can we see he's bringing glory to himself and joy to all the peoples? A gladness, a rejoicing, a happiness, a blessedness to us who believe in him. Will you crown him with me as the desire of nations? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for exalting your son to the greatest and the highest place, to seat him at your right hand, for us to be filled with the Spirit and to have that knowledge. Lord, yet we have not seen him, but we believe in him. We have not touched him, yet we reach out to him. God, make known, make known who you are to us. Reveal to us, you are with us. You are our Emmanuel. Reveal to us your purposes, your plans. Make them known to our knowledge. Make them known to our hearts. Etch them into our souls. May we be a people with hope and longing and desire as life comes and deals us the things of this world that we can look to the day spring for light in the darkness. That we can look to you, our desire as the desire of nations and join in with those in every nation, in every tribe, in every people, every language, every tongue. We can join in with them in worship and in honor and in glory and in praise, lifting up the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So many names you have, so many ways to see you, and let it be our exalting in you. Let it be our rejoicing in you. Let it be our hoping in you. Give us the strength. Open our mouths to sing. Let us continue in our worship right now. In Jesus' name.